Well, good morning. Uh, Before we jump into the passage, I do uh, want to pause for just a second and address something that's probably on your heart and mind as it's been on my heart and mind this week. Um, You're probably aware that just a few days ago, the Supreme Court uh, overturned Roe versus Wade. And I want to take just a moment, if you will, please, uh, to allow me to address this kind of heart to heart. And I want to say, first and foremost, that I'm not a politician. I'm not a legal expert, and I'm not going to pretend uh, to be one. I'm not going to tell you what the political and legal implications of this decision are going to be. I'll leave that to the politicians and legal experts to do that. Um, I want to address this as your pastor. Address this biblically and practically. And so, if you will, just... uh, Hear me out here for just a minute. Um, This is an important issue. Uh, This is an important decision by the Supreme Court. Uh, But the reason, ultimately, is what I alluded to last week, is I think we need a statement of anthropology in our doctrinal statement, a statement of what a person is, including when life begins. And I do believe, scripturally, that the Bible teaches life begins at conception. And I believe that every life from womb to tomb should be treated with dignity, it should be valued, respected, and protected. And so ultimately this is a a biblical issue. This is a theological issue as well that um, I hope uh, you'll hear me out on And practically, to be honest with you, I was terrified and in the last 24 hours I've kind of waffled back and forth on whether or not to even address this because the terrifying part of it is not because I don't know what I believe about this issue, but it's because I don't know your story. And I know as a pastor that the issue of abortion is one that has undoubtedly touched people in this room. And by bringing it up, it is not my intention to bring shame or guilt upon you. But this is an important issue. It's something we need to wrestle with as believers and and, and come to conclusions on. And then also, we need to recognize that with this decision of the Supreme Court, this isn't the end of the story. And by that I mean, ultimately what's at stake here is not just a legal issue, it is a heart issue. And the church, we, the church, regardless of your political position, we need to be ready and equipped to meet the needs of people who will continue to struggle with this. We need to be ready to meet the needs of people with whom we agree and with whom we disagree on political issues. And the biggest concern that I have is that the division we see in our country, in our world, would infiltrate the church. That is not a good thing at all. Uh, We're to be about our unity and our love, even if we disagree on certain issues. And the biggest thing I'd have for you as we think about this issue First, again, is is what I think the Bible does teach about life, that life 
in the womb and out of the womb is to be treated with dignity and protected. Um, And then we need to love people, even those who disagree with us. And at the end of the day, laws change. And as we've seen, even Supreme Court decisions can change, and it could change again. But what doesn't change is the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to make disciples. The purpose of the church is not to make Republicans, it's not to make Democrats, it's not to make politicians. The purpose of the church is to make disciples and that is gonna continue to be our focus even as we wrestle through very real and raw issues like this. Chuck Colson once said, where is the hope? The hope that each of us have is not in who governs us or what laws are passed or what great things that we do as a nation. Our hope is in the power of God working through the hearts of people. And that's where our hope is in this country. That's where our hope is in life. And my hope, my prayer for you this morning is that as you wrestle with, as you think through, as you hear all the debate on the news stations of what this decision means, that your hope remains focused purely and squarely on the gospel of Jesus. And we get to talk about that this morning. Uh, Last week we talked about sin. And I'm kind of surprised that you even came back for another week. (laughs) But this week we get to talk about the hope that will ultimately change the world. And so I want to invite you to open your Bible up to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue this sermon series, working our way through our doctrinal statement, this week focusing especially on what we believe about Jesus, who is the hope of the world. Open up to Philippians chapter 2, grab your outline as well. You can see that this week, as with every week, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the text, we're going to look at the theology, and we're going to look at the takeaway. Uh, think about this. In this entire sermon series, week one, we talked about what is truth. Uh, we talked about the Bible and how the Bible has to be the absolute and final authority for faith and life. Week two, we talked about who is God, and we talked about the Trinity, and we talked about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Last week, we talked about sin and what sin is and what it does to us. This week, we get to talk about Jesus and what difference he makes and what difference he will make when he comes again. So Philippians chapter 2 is our passage this morning. Follow along with me on your outline. I'm going to break down Philippians chapter 2 into three sections, incarnation, redemption, and exaltation. And those are the three big terms we're also going to hit as we think about our doctrinal statement, incarnation, redemption, and exaltation. Let's look first at this idea of incarnation. Philippians chapter 2, let me read for you verses 5 through 7. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Let's pause here and really think about what Paul is saying 
about the incarnation of the Son of God. There's a few big words I want you to see in verse 6 regarding the incarnation of the Son of God. Two big words, existed and form. Notice Paul says there in verse 6, describing Jesus, he says, who, although he, Jesus, existed in the form of God. The word for existed here, the way Paul is using this, Paul is describing Jesus' eternal existence. We touched on this in the sermon on who is God, and as we talked about the Trinity, we talked about how the Son of God existed eternally as God. In other words, Jesus was not created. Jesus, the Son of God, has always eternally existed. And notice the second word Paul uses there, that word form. The word for form describes one's ontology, one's essence, or one's being. Paul here is describing the eternal existence of the Son of God. His ontology, his being, is that of God. Again, to put it very simply, the Son of God has eternally existed as God. Never created, but always there, always God. I also want you to notice there in verse 7 that Paul uses that same word form a second time. So the Son of God existed in the form of God, verse 6, and verse 7, he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant. So what Paul is emphasizing now here in verse 7 is the incarnation of the Son of God when the eternal one who existed as God now takes on the form of human flesh. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. That Jesus is now the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. More on that later. As we continue in these verses, we see a few more very important words. The word grasped and the word emptied. As we think about the incarnation of the Son of God, as we think about Jesus taking on human flesh, Paul uses two very significant words here. He says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or seized, but emptied himself, verse 7. Two big words I wanted to see here are grasped and emptied. And these two words have generated a ton of debate, a ton of discussion, and even a little heresy throughout the last 2,000 years. And so we need to be very careful as we think about what Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 2. First of all, that word grasped. You could translate it also as seized or held on to. This is a difficult word because it's rarely used in Greek literature. It's a rare word, so it's difficult for us to see where it's used in other places and help us understand what Paul is saying here. But I like what one New Testament scholar, Ben Witherington, says. He says that what Paul is saying here, what Paul is doing here, is that Jesus did not hold on to, grasp, or take advantage of his position 
as eternal God. That being God, he didn't take advantage of what was rightfully his. He didn't grasp it or seize it or use it to his advantage, but instead he emptied himself. And that's the second big word that Paul uses here. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Again, this word is an important word. What does Paul mean when he says that Jesus emptied himself? Paul is not saying that Jesus became something other than God, something less than God. That's not what Paul is saying here. Uh, In church history, some heretics, that's what they've argued and said Paul is saying here, but that's not what Paul is saying here. So what is Paul saying here? What does Paul mean when he says Jesus emptied himself? One scholar by the name of Gordon Fee says that uh, this really is metaphor, that Jesus poured himself out. He didn't relinquish his divinity, but in taking the form of human flesh, he poured himself out. He humiliated himself to the point of not only becoming flesh, but notice becoming that of a bondservant or that of a slave. Really what I think Paul is doing with this word is he's showing just how low Jesus went to become one of us. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. He left the glories of heaven, entered into our sinful world, not only becoming flesh, but becoming at the very bottom rung of the social ladder, becoming that of a slave. Paul is showing just how low Jesus was willing to go. Ultimately for our redemption, and that's the second big word. We see this in verse 8. Why did Jesus take on flesh? Why did he become the God-man? Notice verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. This is really why Jesus took on flesh, why God sent his son. And he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One scholar says that like the crescendo of a drum roll, the last word in this verse, the last word to be heard is the word cross. And for Christians in this Roman colony of Philippi, the phrase death on a cross would drive home the lesson that Jesus' identification with men, his death on a cross would serve as the instrument by which he emptied himself and humbled himself. I want you to really pause here and think about this. The humiliation of the Son of God who existed in the form of God, truly God, 100% God, and yet in his love for you, not only took on flesh, not only took on the flesh of a slave, but died for you by means of a cross the most humiliating and excruciating way to die. 
and he did it ultimately for our redemption. I love what N.T. Wright says about this. He says, Jesus' decision to become human was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really means to be divine. And as you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is, this is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. This is a God who is most clearly seen when he abandons his rights for the sake of the world. It's a beautiful picture. And starting in verse 9, everything changes. What we see as a cross, the Father sees as a crown. And starting in verse 9, the subject changes. In all of the previous verses, the subject was Jesus. And now we shift to God the Father and see the exaltation of the Son by the Father to the highest position imaginable. Notice what Paul says in verse 9. He says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As a result of Jesus' obedience, of his humiliating death on a cross. Notice what God the Father does here. Paul says he highly exalted him. Paul really takes the normal word for exalted here and he adds a prefix, hyper exalted, super exalted, ultra exalts the Son. To the point that notice this, one day at the name of Jesus, he says, every knee will bow. Everyone in heaven, everyone on earth, everyone other the er- uh, under the earth, everyone will confess, Paul says, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul here is not saying that ultimately everyone will be saved, but ultimately everyone will recognize the sovereignty and the exaltation of our Savior. Everyone, Paul says, every tongue will express Jesus Christ is Lord. Not Nero, not you, not me, not who's president, but Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is an amazing passage. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It's truly astounding when you think of everything Paul is saying here. But on the other hand, this is all pretty basic stuff, isn't it? I mean, when you really look at what Paul is saying here, Paul is saying Jesus was born, uh, Jesus died for our redemption, and Jesus is now exalted. This is kind of Christianity 101. This is all pretty basic stuff. This is all pretty fundamental Stuff, but sometimes we need to be reminded of the fundamentals. You've probably heard the story of the legendary football coach Vince Lombardi, who in 1961 at training camp 
began the training camp with these professional football players by holding up a football and said, gentlemen, this is a football, <laughs> right? And in training camp that year, they reviewed over and over again the fundamentals of the game. This is a football. He gave them each a playbook, and they opened it up to page one and began reviewing how to block, how to tackle, how to catch. The story is told that one of the Pro Bowl wide receivers stopped Coach Vince Lombardi in the review of these fundamentals of the game, and he said, hold on, Coach, could you slow down a little? You're going too fast for us. But we need to be reminded of the fundamentals. This is a football. This is Christianity 101. But it's essential to what we believe. So let's dig a little deeper and look at number two on your outline and break down our doctrinal statement in a little more detail about what we believe about the person and work of Christ, his incarnation, his work of redemption, and his exaltation. So let's take a look at our doctrinal statement first at the first major section on what we believe about the incarnation. This is on the back side of your outline. Let me read for you really part one of part th- uh, three parts. The first one focusing on the incarnation. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, became man without ceasing to be God, having been conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, in order that he might reveal God and redeem sinful man. Let's pause right here. This part of our doctrinal statement really uh, follows in line with Philippians chapter two. It focuses in on the idea of the incarnation of Jesus. And there's a few major phrases I want you to see here. First of all, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ noticed the eternal son of God. The eternal son. Son of God. He existed, Paul says in Philippians 2, in the form of God. Always existed, never created. But we believe that the eternal Son of God became man without ceasing to be God. And he did this having been conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Like I said earlier, this concept theologically is called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union where Jesus is now 100% man, 100% God. He is the God-man. And we are now, ladies and gentlemen, entering into beyond just this is a football. This is heady stuff, right? When we think about the hypostatic union, when we think about what it is that Jesus is both 100% man and 100% God, this is very intellectual, this is very heady stuff. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to parse this out and figure out exactly what we believe here. Very early on in the history of the church, um, there's a document you should know. It's called the Athanasian Creed. If you've never read it, Google it. It's very good. The Athanasian Creed says, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of the Father and man of the substance of his mother, perfect God and perfect man. Now, in 451, another group of Christians got together at what's called the Council of Chalcedon, and they wrote the Chalcedonian definition. You should also read that. It's very good. 
And at the Council of Chalcedon, these Christian thinkers got together and they really pondered on what it is that Jesus is both God and man, 100% God, 100% man. And they came to the conclusion that now this union of God and man cannot be divided or mixed or changed. It cannot be separated. That Jesus is now and forevermore the God-man. Again, this is very intellectual. This is very heady stuff. So why should we care about it? Well, notice the last phrase there under that first part. Why is this so important? Notice the phrase, in order that he might reveal God and redeem sinful man. That he might reveal God and redeem sinful man. Why does this matter? Why does the incarnation matter? Because Jesus, in taking on flesh, revealed God and redeemed man. Think about this. Only one who is truly God can fully reveal God as he really is. And so it's essential that Jesus is fully God. This is why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. On the other hand, only one who is fully man can die in the place of man, can redeem man. And so it's essential that Jesus is Likewise, 100% man, so he can die in our place and redeem us from our sins, that he can be the perfect sacrifice and substitute for us. Again, this is, in many ways, Christianity 101. This is the fundamentals of our faith. So let's take a look at the middle section of our doctrinal statement, having talked about the importance of the incarnation, now let's switch gears and focus in on the work of redemption. Notice the second part, the middle part of our doctrinal statement. It says, we believe that he, Jesus, accomplished our redemption through his death on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. We believe that our redemption and salvation is guaranteed to us by his literal physical resurrection from the dead. This part of our doctrinal statement really zeroes in on this idea of redemption. Now the word redemption really describes the act of purchasing for the sake of making free. And when we think about the redemption that Jesus accomplished for us, Jesus redeemed us from sin, he redeemed us by his death, and he redeemed us for a life of freedom and also obedience to him. He redeemed us from sin, he redeemed us on the cross, and he redeemed us to a life of grace and freedom and living now for him, the one who redeemed us. Notice as well that our doctrinal statement emphasizes that our redemption was accomplished through his death on the cross, and notice the phrase, as a substitutionary sacrifice. This is essential for you to understand. You may have heard the phrase, penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. The word penal simply means that Jesus took the penalty that we deserve. Substitutionary means he died in our place. 
And atonement is that idea of covering and ultimately paying for your sin and my sin. And so when we think about the work of Jesus on the cross, when we think about his death, he did this taking the penalty we deserve, he did this in our place, and he did this ultimately paying for our sin. Again, the question is, so what? What difference does it make? Well, in our doctrinal statement, we tell you. Why is this so significant? Notice the last sentence. We believe that our redemption and salvation, notice, is guaranteed to us by his literal physical resurrection from the dead. When we think about our salvation, when we think about our redemption, notice the guarantee for your redemption, your salvation. It's not in anything that you do. It's not in any commitment you make. It's not in anything of human ability, the guarantee of our redemption, the guarantee of our salvation is rooted in the resurrection, the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection didn't happen, didn't happen, then we are still in our sins and we are of all people most to be pitied. Uh, the resurrection is the confirmation, it's the guarantee that Jesus' payment for our sin is secure. This is the second major concept in our doctrinal statement. The third is this idea of the exaltation of Jesus. We talked about the incarnation, the redemption, and now let's look at the, in, uh, the exaltation. The last part of our doctrinal statement says, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> is now in heaven exalted to the right hand of God, where as his people's high priest, he fulfills the ministry of intercession and advocacy. So the big word I want you to see here is this word exalted. We believe that after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he ascended into heaven and he is now at that exalted position that we read about in Philippians 2. He's at this exalted position at the Father's right hand. And there at the Father's right hand, notice we believe that Jesus is serving as your high priest, representing you to God and God to you. And he's fulfilling that ministry of intercession and advocacy. This is huge. That Jesus even right now is at that exalted position at the Father's right hand and he is interceding or praying for you and he is advocating for you. When our adversary, the devil, makes accusations against you, Jesus is there defending you, not because of who you are, but because of what he has done, because you're redeemed. I mean, this is considerable, uh, when you cons or this is incredible when you consider it. Uh, by the way, historically, uh, when we think about the exaltation of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus historically also includes the idea that one day he will return. Because he's ascended and exalted, in that idea is also that one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. That Jesus ascended to bring 
or he descended, excuse me, to bring God to man, but then he ascended ultimately to bring man to God. That one day, because of Jesus, we physically will be with God forever and ever. Again, when you think about our doctrinal statement, I mean, it's pretty basic stuff. Jesus was born, Jesus did our work of redemption, and Jesus is now exalted, and one day he will return. This is fundamental. Like Vince Lombardi, UCLA basketball coach John Wooden would also begin his coaching season by going over the basics, the fundamentals. The story is told that at the beginning of each season, John Wooden would instruct his basketball players on how to put on their socks and how to tie their shoes. And in many ways, this is a football. This is how you tie your shoes. But truly, the fundamentals make all the difference. So let's take a look at number three on your outline and talk about ultimately what difference does this make. Now again, just as a point of review, our doctrinal statement itself really includes the so what. Why is the incarnation significant? Because in the incarnation, we see that Jesus revealed God and redeemed man. Why is redemption significant? Because in being resurrected from the dead, Jesus is guaranteeing our salvation. And why is the exaltation of Jesus significant? Because right now, as we await his return, we know that he's serving as our high priest. He's praying for us. He's advocating for us. But let's take a step back even further for just a second and ask, why is this so important? What difference does it truly make? The bottom line is, if this isn't true, if this isn't true, then we might as well pack it up and go home. Netflix is not going to watch itself, right? If this isn't true, then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. If this isn't true, then we can decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. If this isn't true, then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are still in our sins, and we are of all people most to be pitied. But if this is true, if Jesus really did take on flesh, then this means that God loves you that he sent his son to die for you in your place and in my place. If this is true, that on the cross, Jesus accomplished our redemption, then it means that you have been purchased with the price of the body and the blood of our Savior, that your sins are forgiven, that when God looks on you, he no longer sees your sin, but he sees the very righteousness of Christ. If this is true, then it means that one day Jesus is going to return, that he's going to take us home to be with him forever. And if this is true, it means that while we wait for that day, we have a high priest in heaven who's praying for us, who's advocating for us. If this is true, then this makes all the difference. 
So the question I have is, do you believe this? As fundamental as some of this is, and as intellectual as some of this is, the question I have for you is, do you believe it? Here in person, in this room this morning, or watching online, that's the question I've got for you. Do do you believe who Jesus is? The eternal Son of God who took upon human flesh to die in your place as your substitute who will one day return to judge the living and the dead. This is the most fundamental and eternity-changing question that you can consider. And so I'm asking, if you've never really trusted in him, if you've never put your faith in him, to consider trusting in him even right now. There, on the back side of your outline, I've given you some other application questions to consider. Uh, But your one thing for this week, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, I'd invite you to reflect on his incarnation, his redemption, and his exaltation. And to ask yourself, in what ways is God calling you to grow in your worship of him for all that he is, for all that he's done? So what is our only hope in life and in death? That we are not our own, but that we belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a football. This is how you tie your shoes. This is who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we begin to even consider and grasp the enormity of your love and grace for us, as we continue to wrestle with what it is to live as your disciples in this broken and fallen world, Father, it is our heart's confession that our only hope in life and in death is that we are not our own, that we've been bought with a price, that therefore we are to glorify you in all that we do. Father, help us, help me, help all of us as we do indeed wrestle with how to live in a broken world, as we continue to wrestle with our own sin, as we continue to wrestle with a broken world and cultural around us. God, I pray that we would fix our hope on nothing else but at the hope that we have in Christ our Savior. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.